0: Father, we come to you because you have called us into your presence and you've given us the opportunity through the blood of Jesus Christ to come into the presence of God Almighty and to give to you our petitions and our requests and our thanksgiving and our praise. Lord, I ask that you will fill our hearts with thanksgiving because no matter how difficult life may seem to us at any given moment, there is so much more for which we owe you thanks. Father, we would agree together today for those that are part of our lives, who are uh, family members, who are friends, who are neighbors, who are co-workers, who do not know you and for whom you have given to us a burden. And Father, as we pray together corporately this morning, we unite our hearts in prayer for these people because we know you love them as much as you love anyone else. And your desire is that all might come to a knowledge of Christ. And so we pray for them, those that we have contact with through the week, or maybe only once in a while. But certainly, Lord, I pray that our lives will reflect Jesus Christ into their lives, and that they will respond to the truth, and that you will strip away everything that hinders uh, their response, their pride, uh, their indifference, whatever it may be. We ask, Lord, that as a result of our prayers this day, we will see a harvest of many souls in the weeks and months ahead. Father, I pray that you will be powerfully present with us this morning. You will guide our thoughts, our words, our understanding of Scripture, that you will strengthen us in our commitment to you, even as we face uh, the trials of each day. Father, I pray that our love for you will deepen and our faith in you will broaden and that we'll become the people you have called us to be for the sake of your great kingdom, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn to the 31st chapter of the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 31. I'll begin this morning by reading the first 12 verses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take full vengeance for the sons of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward you will be gathered to your people. And Moses spoke to the people saying, arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. A thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel, you shall send to the war. So there were furnished from the thousands of Israel, a thousand from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. And Moses sent them a thousand from each tribe to the war, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, to the war with them, and the holy vessels, and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. So they made war against Midian, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, and they killed every male. And they killed the kings of Midian, along with the rest of their slain, Evi and Rachem, Zur, and Hur and Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. And the sons of Israel captured the women of Midian and their little ones, and all their cattle and all their flocks and all their goods they plundered. And they burned all their cities where they lived and all their camps with the fire. And they took all the spoil and all the prey, both of man and beast. And they brought the captives and the prey and the spoil to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the congregation of the sons of Israel, to the camp at the plains of Moab, which are are by the Jordan opposite Jericho. This, of course, is not a particularly pleasant scripture, but it has a very specific point. In fact, this whole chapter is a very powerful point, uh, several points, of course, but there's truth here that is, is very important for us to understand. The Midianites had been responsible for a premeditated, purposeful attempt to seduce Israel. And you remember that it was through the influence of Balaam, the prophet of Beor, and, and their purpose was to seduce Israel into following the demonic deity known as Baal of Peor. And Israel is commanded here by, lo- by, by the Lord, through Moses, to execute the Lord's vengeance upon Midian. To execute the Lord's vengeance upon Midian. I mean, God could have done it. God could have rained fire and brimstone on them and wiped them out. But God used Israel. Now, the passage reminds us that God had already told Moses to go up to Mount Ebo, and there he was to be gathered to his fathers, which, of course, was an Old Testament way of saying, die. But before he was to die, God is now instructing him that he is to lead Israel in dealing with Midian before he goes up to Mount Ebo. What's interesting is this passage of Scripture tells us that 1,000 men were to be chosen from each of the tribes to form this army that was then to be sent against Midian. Now, are these men volunteers? I mean, really volunteers. I don't mean military style volunteers. I mean, true volunteers. Or were they the pick chosen by the tribal and clan leaders, you and you and you, a military style choice, of putting together an army of select soldiers? Well, we don't know. The passage doesn't tell us that. But what we do know is that Israel by now has many veterans. There are many who have already participated in war. Now, while they're wandering through the desert, of course, they hadn't had much opportunity for warfare, but they have just conquered the Amorite lands. That whole area known as Transjordan, from north of the Dead Sea approximately up to the Sea of Galilee and beyond on the east side of the Jordan River, they've just captured that. And they've defeated two kings and two armies and uh, they've swept through that land and occupied the territory. So there are within Israel veterans. Was this an army of veterans? Probably it was. Probably those were the ones that were chosen. What is interesting is that the army is as small as it is. 1,000 from each tribe. That forms an army of 12,000. God purposely selects a small force. Has Moses choose a small force? Israel could have, could have fielded a much larger force. Probably the 12,000 constituted no more than 10% of what could have been fielded. And given the size of Midian and the number of armed men that were within Midian, 12,000 was uh, not a particularly large force. But God had a specific purpose in this. And the purpose was to demonstrate the power of God in this victory. It is not of man, it is of God. And what is so ironic about this is that probably the best illustration in Scripture of this truth is found dealing with the same two nations. Let me read from Judges chapter 7. This is a story most of you know pretty well. You've probably, if you, if you are a church person and you were raised in Sunday school, you've heard this story many times, uh, the story of Gideon. We're going to read the whole story of Gideon but uh, a portion of it in the 7th chapter of uh, Judges. Beginning with verse 1. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him arose early and camped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The camp of whom? (laughs) Midian. Here we are, several hundred la- years later, and we show up with these same people again. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, lest Israel become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. <laughs> now therefore, come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, Let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned. These are soldiers, right? 22,000 soldiers returned and 10,000 were left. So you had an army of 32,000. Now the enemy, which wasn't just Midian, we find in other passages, there were Amalekites mixed in and there were other peoples from the east, it says. But the name that is constantly used here is Midian. So Midian was the uh, perpetrator and the principal party involved here. And the scripture and other passages imply that there were about 150,000 of them. So 32,000, that's a five to one disadvantage. That's too many, the Lord says. You can't have that many because uh, I mean, each one of you only gets to kill five. So we, we got to do something different about that. Verse four, then the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Therefore, it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you. He shall go with you, but every one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand, you know, dipping the water up and lapping it while they're looking around, alert people, amounted to 300. All the rest were down on their hands and knees with their face in the water, you know, get axed in the back of the head uh, type deal. And the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the people go, each man to his home. Well, you know, that's an extreme. This is a very extreme situation. I I don't care if these were green berets, you know, if you're outnumbered 150,000 to 300, that's, that's, those aren't really good odds, (laughs) particularly since the weaponry was approximately the same. Uh, It's not like one side has atomic bombs and the other one has bows and arrows. And we're all talking about swords and bows and arrows and spears here. But, but the point is, God was to demonstrate that the victory was his, not yours, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Amen. And, and that echoes through all of Scripture. And, and so that is the truth here relative to, even to this time we're talking about, an earlier impact uh, event involving Midian here with only 12,000 soldiers. What's interesting is that God has here, once again, called his people to do a a distasteful thing. You can imagine that most of these 12,000 did not relish the idea of going out there and butchering another people. But the importance of this is that they would learn the eternal significance of spiritual adultery, and it would be burned into their minds. That spiritual adultery is so vile that nothing less than total annihilation will stop the problem. Now Moses is not only the spiritual leader of Israel, he is the political leader of Israel. He is the military leader, although he himself does not go out to war. But he has to send the army of Israel into a holy war against Midian. Now, remember, the Midianites are descendants of Abraham. Abraham, after Sarah died, remarried a woman by the name of Keturah, who was apparently a great deal younger than he, and by her six more sons were born, one of whom was Midian. And these are the descendants of Abraham, but they are not within the covenant of God. But this does not make Moses happy and joyous about doing this. And there's a very strong reason why that's true. Let me go back to the second chapter of Exodus. Now you may have foggily back there in your mind from the time that we studied this, um, some kind of a, a remembrance of what this was about. But in the second chapter of Exodus, beginning at verse 15, we read this. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to rule their father, he said, why have you come back so soon today, girls? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, where is he then? Why is it that you have left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. And Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah, different names used for the same person, but Reuel and Jethro, the same person, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife Zipporah, after he had sent her away, and her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, and the other was named Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he camped at the mountain of God. While Moses was out at Mount Sinai, his father-in-law, who was a Midianite priest, Who believed in the true God, from what we can reckon here, came with Moses' wife. Moses had sent his wife back home because she had been a problem to him as he was heading out uh, to um, to lead Israel, and uh, so he'd sent her home. Now he's bringing her back with the two sons. So Moses' two sons are half Midianite. His father-in-law was a Midianite. His wife was a Midianite. I don't think this was a great joy to Moses. To to order the execution of, of a nation to whom he is closely related. You know, I, I don't think it was a joy to him at all. I think it was a great pain and a great stain, uh, strain for Moses. But that was part of the burden that he carried in, in the, being the spiritual leader of the nation. You just often don't understand, unless you've been <laughs> in the place, the burden that spiritual leaders carry for their people. And I think that's true today as it has been in the Old Testament days. If a man is truly the shepherd of the flock, he carries a burden for these people. And he's hopefully in prayer for them and he wages war, spiritual war on their behalf. Not that we aren't individually responsible for God, we are. But God still gives us shepherds. And those shepherds carry a major burden. And life is not a lark for them. It's a very difficult thing. And so it was for Moses here. And so I, I think Moses sent this army out heavy-hearted, not light-hearted. I, didn't think, I don't think he said, "Go get them guys," you know, kind of like a coach yelling to his team. I, I think it was, well, this has to be done, so use the knife and uh, perform the surgery. What's interesting in this passage is that we're told that the army was uh, to accompany the army was sent Phineas. Now, Phineas was not the high priest. Phineas was the son of the high priest. Eleazar was the high priest. Phineas was the grandson of Aaron. But Phineas is sent along to carry the holy uh, vessels and the great silver trumpets of alarm. Why is Phineas chosen? The choice of Phineas is no accident. Uh, Moses specifically selected Phineas because it is this man who in effect declared spiritual war on the Midianites. Because when... Cosby, the uh, daughter of one of the Midianite kings, seduced Zimri, who was one of the tribal leaders of Israel, and, and they f- performed their fornication right in front of all of the nation at the time they were in repentance for their sin, and, and Phineas went in there and he rammed them through with a spear. He was declaring war, spiritual war on the Midianite God, Baal Peor, and therefore I think the choice was very obvious. Send Phineas with the army because he has a ferocious uh, desire to, to honor the name of God no matter what. He will do whatever it takes. Now, what these holy vessels were that were sent along, we're not told. It was probably not the Ark of the Covenant. There's usually always the scripture says specifically if the Ark goes It probably wasn't some other implements. We don't know what they were. But we do know what the trumpets were. The trumpets which were sent into battle were not the shofar in this instance, but was the long bell-shaped silver trumpets that uh, that God had commanded Moses to make clear back in Numbers chapter 10. The record is there. In the ninth verse of that 10th chapter, we read this. When you go to war in your land against the adversary who attacks you, Then you shall sound an alarm with these trumpets. In the construction, the trumpets had already been described. They were long-necked silver trumpets. That you may be remembered before the Lord your God and be saved from your enemies. You know, the point of that wasn't that God is up in heaven, you know, and he's doing his thing. And he's not really too sure what's going on down there. So you got to blow a trumpet to get his attention. No, no. The whole point of the matter is that by blowing the trumpet, you are dedicating yourself to him and you're saying, God, help us because we need your help. I'm not going to go out and do it on my own. I need God's help. It's acknowledging God. You know, what does the scripture say? If in all our ways we acknowledge him, he will what? Direct our paths. And so it's a matter of acknowledging God. And that was the point of the silver trumpets. And as they acknowledged God, he then would act on their behalf? Well, the army was obedient. The soldiers were obedient. They went to battle and they killed all the soldiers of Midian. They also killed the tribal chieftains and we read their names there. What is interesting is that one of those tribal chieftains, if you go through that list, you'll find that one of them was named Zur, Z-U-R. And what is interesting about that is if we go back to the 25th chapter of Numbers, which we won't do, but if you remember, that is the chapter I alluded to a minute ago where Phinehas killed this woman, this Midianite woman, and this Israelite man who were polluting the congregation. Well, her name was Cosby, and the scripture tells us that she was the daughter of Zur. So she was a chieftain's daughter and had participated in the seduction of Israel. She had been slain, and now her father is amongst the five chieftains who are slain. And then what's amazing about this passage, it says, down there, little addendum says, and also Baal of, you know, Balaam of Beor was slain. So what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his, lose his own soul? Balaam is a powerful example of that. A man to whom God had demonstrated his reality who tried to curse Israel, and God kept putting blessings in his mouth. I mean, the guy would have to be totally ignorant to not believe that God is real. And yet he goes over to the Midianites, and he convinces them, you know, if you seduce the Israelites, we'll get the, the same job done that you were, I was supposed to do with the cursing. And, and so he's there with the Midianites, and so he gets himself killed along with the rest. I I kind of think that whoever the soldier was that dispatched him, if he knew he was, probably did it with a bit of glee and and joy, you know, to knock that guy off. Well, the scripture tells us here that the Midianite women and children, along with everything that they owned, became the spoils of war for Israel. Their tent communities were torched. It, It says cities there, but you have to remember that the Midianites were a nomadic people. They were constantly in movement. They were dwelling in Moab at this particular time because they were in alliance with Moab against Israel. And so basically when it says cities there, it it means 10 cities. And uh, it mentions encampments. And what happened, of course, was they just torched the whole thing. And the whole thing went up in in a great uh, ferocious fire. Now, we have to understand something here. And obviously one of the commentators I read didn't understand this because he says, and and thus ended the Midianites and they were exterminated. Well, I don't know how that happened because we just read in Judges that they were back on the scene again. So obviously one of two things happened here. Some of the Midianites escaped, and that's very possible. You know, an army comes crashing in and you're dealing with an encampment uh, that's very large and you're dealing with well over 100,000 people. Some of them are going to flee and escape. (laughs) The other possibility is, of course, that this group of Midianites was not the whole group of Midianites, that maybe the group that uh, Moses had married into was actually a kind of a separate uh, group uh, from this group and that they were living in two different locations. That is also a possibility. Whatever the case is, the Midianites will return again, and the Midianites will again be a plague to Israel. It's kind of like when cancer is not all gotten out, it comes back again, and that's exactly what we got here. Uh, The Midianites again will come. They will again oppress Israel, and the scripture will tell us that it was so bad that the Israelites were hiding in caves in the mountains, and, and of course, you know, when Gideon was chosen to be the great warrior of the Lord, he was down inside a a wine press, threshing grain so the Midianites wouldn't see him. You know, because they were stealing everything. Hey, he's down there trying to secretly do this, and the Lord says, "Oh, mighty warrior!" And well, you you heard that? Me, a <laughs> mighty warrior? <laughs> but you know, one of the things that tells us is that any one of us can be a mighty warrior for God because it's only as he empowers us that anybody's a mighty warrior. I mean, you can have all the physical strength and talent you want, but if God isn't there, it's a waste. It accomplishes nothing. Completing the conquest of this, uh, this tribal nation, the, the Midianites, the Israelites' soldiers now herd all the animals that they have captured and all the people that they captured, they're herding them back towards their camp now. They're leading this whole crowd of animals. And a little bit later, not today, on a subsequent day, we're going to look at what, this, what the spoils of war were. And it was immense. I don't know. Anyway, uh, all these animals and all these people, they're herding them back to the encampment there on the plain of Moab so that they can present them before God and before Moses and all their people as trophies of victory. Well, let's, let's read on in chapter 31 here. Uh, verses 13 to 20. <laughs> And Moses and Eleazar the priest and all the leaders of the congregation went out to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the captains of thousands and the captains of hundreds who had come from service in the war. And Moses said to them, have you spared all the women? Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the council of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and every kill every woman who has known a man intimately. But all the girls who have not known a man intimately spare for yourselves. And you And you camp outside the camp seven days. Whoever has killed any person, whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves, you and your captives, on the third day and on the seventh day. And you shall purify yourselves for yourselves every garment and every article of leather and all the work of goat's hair in all articles of wood. Well, when you're, when you're herding hundreds of thousands of animals and you are 12,000 strong and the people you're bringing along with you are scores of thousands strong, it creates a big commotion and a big cloud of dust, you know. And and so uh, Moses and Eliezer knew the army was coming long before they could ever see them because this big cloud of dust was coming in, in their direction. And so, Moses and Eliezer lead the chieftains of Israel out to meet the army outside the camp. They wanted to be sure that no one desecrated the camp of Israel by coming into it unpurified. Because of the scriptures that we studied before in the 19th chapter of Numbers, they had to be purified from touching any dead person or killing anybody. <laughs> and of course, pagans had to be purified. They couldn't enter the camp without going through ritual purification. And, and there were a bunch of pagans here uh, that they were herding along towards the camp on the plain of Moab. And you can just imagine the leaders, the captains of the army They're coming along and they're whistling. They've had this great victory. They've got this immense amount of booty here that they're bringing along with them. And uh, they see Moses and Eliezer in the distance and they think, wow, are they going to be impressed with us? And can you imagine the deflation when they saw Moses' face? And Moses wasn't smiling. Moses was angry. Now, they had seen Moses angry before and they knew it wasn't a good thing. (laughs) And the very first words out of Moses' mouth was not, good work, guys, or you won a great victory, or the Lord did this mighty thing, he says, have you spared the women? You know, it reminds me of Samuel's words to Saul after he had, uh, you know, won a great victory, and Samuel says, what meaneth the bleeding of all the sheep if you killed everything? How come all these sheep are bleeding, you know? And Saul says, well, the people did it, you know, they made me keep all the sheep. Well, you know, kind of sounds like Adam and Eve in the garden here. Why have you spared all the women? Now they had killed all the men. And basically that would mean everybody down to about bar mitzvah. You know, everybody down to about 13, all the males had been wiped out because that would be a man. Uh, They had killed all the males. What was left, of course, was all the boys younger than that and all the women, girls and adults, all of them had been preserved. Now, these Israelite soldiers were probably mostly husbands and fathers, and as such, they're going to have a certain compassion on these women and on these children, and that's natural. And if it wasn't just sympathy for them, they certainly looked upon them as potential slaves. Aha, look at all the work these people can do for us. I think they had either forgotten or purposely ignored the fact that it was the women of Midian who had seduced So many Israelite men to defect from the worship of Yahweh to the worship of Baal of Peor. And as a result, that had brought the judgment of God upon Israel, which had killed 24,000 Israelites. Changes your sense of compassion when you realize that these are the people who caused the death of 24,000 of our people. And that's what Moses was trying to drive home because, you see, their religion was not just a kind of, well, you know, we've got to bring our sacrifices to this God and go through the week all and we don't. Their religion permeated their whole culture. It was orgiastic. Um, Sexual promiscuity was part of the worship. And therefore, Moses was really angry with these guys. Don't you see? Can't you understand? The spiritual adultery cannot be brought into this camp and these women reflect that. They threaten the very existence of Israel. If you flood this camp with all of these women who've been practicing this, you're going to, at the very best, dilute the faith. And at the worst, you're bringing a cancer into our midst. The Midianites were steeped in their worship. And I've, I've alluded to this before. And unless you really study this in detail, you, you can't realize how vile the worship of Baal in his many forms really was. And, and later on in Israel, when it talks about the kings of Israel and that they allow the uh, the groves to continue to exist on the high places and the worship of Ashtoreth and the worship of Baal. Well, Baal and Ashtoreth were fertility cults. And Baal and Ashtoreth were sort of like, you know, one was male, one was female. And the phallic symbol was used in the worship. I mean, it was absolutely gross. It not only involved... Uh, human sacrifice and baby sacrifice involved all kinds of promiscuity, even to the po- point of cult prostitution, male and female. And as a result, uh, it, it, of course, very much lended itself to the sensuality, the natural sensuality of people. And so God understood the ultimate vileness of this, and that the only thing that can be done is to wipe it out. You, you, you can't just wash it away. You've got to wipe it out. And so To bring any of those people into the camp would be to invite disaster upon Israel. The only way to be sure that such women were not attached to Israel and not brought into Israel was to kill them. And every woman who was not a virgin was killed because there was no way to prove that she had not given herself to this cultic practice and was not therefore in effect a priestess of one form or another. And so the only thing they could do was kill them all. There's a difficult truth to grasp here, and that is that God's requirement that the Midianites be slaughtered was both an act of judgment and an act of mercy. It was an act of judgment, of course, upon Midian for their vileness and their attempt to destroy Israel, but it was, act, it was an act of mercy upon Israel. It was an act of mercy because If that temptation had been allowed to come within Israel, it would have impacted Israel and thousands of Israelites would have died in their sin and gone forever to destruction. And God's view, you know, as we've talked about before, God's view is not, oh, are you having a good time today? Are you okay today? Are you comfortable today? God's view of our lives is eternal. And what's important to him is that we end up eternally with him. And if it means a difficult life here, then so be it. God will see to it that we have it. You know, if we have to have our backs against the wall all the time in order to keep our faith in him, then that's where he's going to keep us. Because his love for us is so great. We have this human kind of love, which is often more mushy than it is real. And that is, oh my, you know, this poor person, they're, they're suffering and, and and they're having this hard time, you know. So whatever makes them feel better is, is the best thing. Well, that's not true if, if it contributes to the damnation of their soul, that the salvation of their soul is so much more important than anything else, that if a person has to become whatever for the rest of their lives, that's worth it for the salvation of their soul. Listen to Johnny Erickson Tata talk about, you know, she, you know, she was an epitome of her youth, 18-year-old, beautiful, talented, and she breaks her ne- neck and ends up in a wheelchair for the rest of her life, and she thanks God for it. Because she doesn't know where she would have ended up had she gone on, you know, with all of her—that's all that she was gifted with. But God has used her to change so many lives, you know. So it was a blessing, and she's thankful. She wouldn't do it any other way. But we have this mushy kind of love that would say, "Oh, that's too bad. We don't want that to happen." God doesn't view things that way. Any nation or any individual who rejects God and pursues other gods is liable to the judgment of God. That judgment fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. And did God say, well, there are some kids down there. Can't let this happen. No, when God wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah, he wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah. Male, female, young, and old, the whole kit and caboodle. And this is going to happen in the end. Let me turn to a passage that many people don't particularly enjoy, and that's understandable. Sixth chapter of Revelation. You know, the famous four horsemen, but these aren't of Notre Dame. Uh, these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Revelation, beginning at verse one of the chapter. And I saw the lamb I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, with a voice of thunder, "Come!" And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, "Come." And another, a a red horse went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men should slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. And when he broke the third seal, I heard the living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him, and authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, with wild beasts of the earth. And this was indiscriminate in the sense that it didn't choose you know, only the adults. It didn't choose just the males. The quarter of the earth is the whole population, male, female, young or old. War is indiscriminate, as you may know. World War II was one of the greatest tragedies to to sweep across mankind. And when you look at the number of innocent, as we might call them, uh, civilians who were killed in the war, it was humongous. You've probably seen the pictures of bombed Shanghai and bombed Dresden and Of course, Adam bombed Hiroshima. And, I mean, it was just absolutely gross and awful. God gives us a heart of compassion because he is a compassionate God. But God does not have a mushy kind of love when it comes to that which has to do with eternal life. As I said a little earlier, uh, quoting from Jesus, what will a man give in exchange for his life? Even if he gains the whole world... Wouldn't it be great if you, uh, probably wouldn't, but, uh, you know, if you could hear what Hitler would have to say now, or Stalin, or Mao, men who wanted to rule the world, but what would they say now? Would they say it was worth it? I don't think so. I think they would cry out like the rich man and say, oh, Lord, send this poor man back to tell my brothers so they don't come here too. Well, the soldiers had the onerous task now. You know, it's, it's one thing to slay people in the heat of battle, I would suppose. But it's another thing now to purposely have to herd these people together someplace. I don't even like to think about this. I butcher the whole lot. Kids. Male boys. Just because they're male. Three years old. Five years old. Women. It's kind of a gross picture. But that's what they had to do. And after they had completed this task, which I don't think a single one of them had any joy in at all. And there were probably some who thought, Moses, you're a harsh man. (laughs) You represent a harsh God. You know, but that's because they don't see the big picture. They just see what's here. And that's our human dilemma. We don't see beyond the wall. We don't see the big picture as God sees it. God's love is so great that he will allow nothing to stand in the way of bringing the largest number of souls into eternal (coughs) rest with him. And he will stop at nothing, even the death of thousands of people, whom we in the world would would, would label innocent. But you see, for those little tiny children, any of them who, you know, didn't participate and were too young to understand, that was actually an act of mercy for them. Because my understanding of God is that if a child dies and that child has never had an opportunity to understand what it means to know Jesus or to understand that he or she is a sinner, that that person passes into the presence of God because our God is just and fair and our God is a loving God. That is one reason. Why, well, I believe every tribe and tongue will be will be there before the throne. not only because the word will penetrate to every tribe and tongue at the end of time, but throughout time there have been those gathering from every tribe and tongue who have died in their infancy, and gone into the presence of God. What did these soldiers have to do? They had to go through the purification of the ritual of the red heifer. May just read here in closing today from the nineteenth chapter of numbers. Beginning at verse 11, the one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. That one shall purify himself from uncleanness with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and then he shall be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he shall not be clean. Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water for impurity was not sprinkled on him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. And again, this is a ritual, it's a ceremonial thing. It's not talking about washing the germs of somebody's blood off the body. We're talking about a ritual purity here. And God is saying, if you do not believe me and trust my word to the extent that you will do this simple thing that I've required, then that is a statement that you do not believe me at all. And therefore you're cut off from my people, Israel. Unbelief is what separates us from the kingdom of God. These men had been set out on a God-ordained task. They had been set out on a Jewish jihad, if you will, a holy war, to to wipe out this, this pagan nation that had attempted to destroy God's people. And yet, although everything they had done had been in obedience to God, they still had to go through this ritual cleansing because that was an act of commitment and obedience And that's what God demands of his people. And actually it's a gift because anything that we can do that helps to drive home the reality of our faith strengthens us in our walk and helps us to be convinced with our own spirit that we are truly the children of God. Well, next week we'll pick up with chapter, well, with verse 21 and and move on from there.